We need to have some, you know, neurodivergent leaders at the top of organisations sharing their story, celebrating the strengths and the trials, but also talking openly and candidly about some of the barriers that they faced along the way. And as you say, I think it gives people hope. There's these misconceptions that individuals who are neurodivergent don't want to climb the ladder. And that might be the case for some individuals, but I'm speaking to more and more individuals who want to break free of that mold, free of that stereotype. They want to climb the ladder. And how do they do that? So we need inspiration. We need Aussie inspiration. You know, there's been some well-known leaders, you know, we've got the Richard Bransons, the Lord Sugars, Charlotte in Denmark, but we need to start seeing, I think, some Aussie-owned, Aussie-branded ND leadership to help drive that conversation as well. Welcome to Princess and the Pea podcast, a show by neurodivergent women for neurodivergent women. I'm your host, Annie Crow, and I'm an autistic ADHDer who likes to talk a lot about neurodiversity. I started this podcast so I could share meaningful conversations that explore the lives of autistic and ADHD folk like myself. We talk about everything from employment to healthcare, education, parenting, relationships, and more, but all in a neuro spicy light. Before we kick off, I just wanted to add a quick content warning for little ears. This podcast will be discussing mental health issues and serious adult business. So chuck on your headphones and grab a cup of tea. And as Bluey likes to say, let's do this. Today's guest is one of my favorite humans to follow on LinkedIn, sharing endless amazing content on all things neurodiversity and employment. Kate is the Principal Neurodiversity Consultant at Employ for Ability, which is an innovative social business focused on helping organizations understand the benefits of hiring neurodivergent people as a part of their social inclusion and diversity programs. Her team, along with founder David Smith, provides managers and neurotypical staff with autism awareness training and coaching. And they also work with neurodivergent individuals to provide employment coaching. Kate is helping move the conversation away from a deficit-based focus towards showcasing our unique neurodivergent strengths and skills that make us fantastic employees in the right environment. And she's neurodivergent herself. So she truly speaks our language and understands the barriers we face in a neurotypical dominated workforce. In today's episode, I basically have my own coaching slash therapy session with Kate, sharing all my dirty laundry from the challenges I faced when I was entering the workforce and getting Kate's marvelous insights into some of the main barriers we face as neurodivergent individuals and how we can overcome them. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. We talk about everything from recruitment to leadership, rejection sensitivity, communication differences, psychological safety at work, self-advocacy, flexible work practices, masking, and more. It's a jam-packed episode, and we are both very passionate ADHDers. So buckle in. Hi, Kate. Thanks for joining us on the show. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you. Really excited to be here. Oh, so good. Let's jump into it. I've got so many questions for you. 
Um, can you tell us a bit about what you do as Principal Neurodiversity Consultant at Employee for Ability? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm fairly new to the role at uh, Employee for Ability and the organisation itself is actually fairly new as well. So it's only about three years old, but it's growing at a really rapid pace at the moment. Uh, and the founder, uh, David Smith, uh, was actually recently a finalist in the uh, Telstra Business Awards, making it all the way to the that. very so last cool. stage, which was exciting. So it's really it's nice to know the work that he and the team are doing in this space is getting recognised. So um, David, particularly when he first started the business, there was there is still quite a large emphasis on the SLES, the School Lever Employment Support Program, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. And he really saw a gap, particularly in the ACT. Uh, and David also talks openly about one of his children, Ollie, uh, who's also on the yeah. spectrum. Yeah. Uh, and some of the, I guess, the humour and the amazing strengths that he can see firsthand as well so I think that's driven him with that passion so good to see to create this and I think that's as you'd know as well when you get these really amazing meaningful outcomes because it's more than just a job he's trying to create change so absolutely um, he's doing a lot of work um, I said in Canberra with the with this les with this school leave support program and for me really working with a, a new I guess cohort of talent within this space which is really untapped in a lot of Australia as well and starting to actually expand that program and that model uh, around Australia. So I've, I've come on, I've known Dave for quite a while now. We do share similar values and passions from that perspective. Yeah. Um, so it was really exciting when this opportunity kind of came to fruition in the end. But a, a large part of my role is advocacy. It's, um, I guess, about that capacity building and awareness piece and creating change within, I guess, that neurodiversity employment space as well. Absolutely. Very important work and very, very impressive. I, I love following the work you and Dave do. It's uh, so good to have people like you on our team uh, and obviously being neurodivergent yourself as well. That That's, you know, love, just great to hear. I think it helps drive passion, doesn't it? That experience. Yeah, keeping in the family. It's great. Absolutely. So I know you've got a bit of a passion for uh, neurodiverse leadership, which I also love. So can you tell us a bit about building neurodiverse leadership within the workforce? Yeah. So you're right. It is a particular area that I've almost um, become a little fascinated in at the moment because it, it has become evident to me just through a lot of the discussions that I'm having with individuals I might be coaching or supporting that there really is... Is, there is a lot of focus on recruitment, which I think is brilliant and 100% needed, particularly here in Australia, where we've got such a long way to go in bridging that unemployment gap. Oh, yeah. But there's not really a lot of talk or focus on not just retention, but those opportunities to keep climbing the corporate ladder. We don't hear a lot of stories about neurodivergent leadership. And I think that's really sad. And I think until we have that, we're not going to see that systemic cultural change that we need within organisations. I completely agree. It's such a loss because we know that individuals who are neurodivergent, you know, they bring that authenticity. We know that there's that um, you know, demonstrated empathy, that innovation, that creativity, that mm. out-of-box thinking. So to me it's such a missed opportunity not to have individuals you know, who are neurodivergent representing on boards uh, and it's something that I would like to see change. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm very very um, passionate about that myself because uh, especially in the disability sector we we're constantly fighting 
just to get support to have less unemployment and less underemployment. And I mean, a part of underemployment is letting us live up to our potential and supporting us in doing that. But I think another, like one step further is really getting people into those leadership positions to really affect, you know, systemic change. And also to give those of us who are, you know, lower down on the, the totem pole some inspiration. Julia Gillard, when she was our first PM, It was just amazing to finally say we've had a woman in office. We'd need that in all walks of life, in all minorities. Representation, I think, is so important. And I love love how you put it, all those wonderful traits about our people and and just the integrity we have and the the good-hearted nature we have, I think. I mean, I I feel like we'd be great leaders. Oh, I mean, there's absolutely no argument for me and you yeah. probably know you follow me on LinkedIn. So I, do, I have been posting a bit you lately, can. but I guess so we need to start the conversation. We need to have some, you know, neurodivergent leaders at the top of organisations sharing their story, celebrating, you know, the strengths and the trials, but also talking openly and candidly about some of the barriers that they faced along the way. And as you say, I think it gives people hope stereotypically um, you know, well, there's these misconceptions that individuals who are neurodivergent don't want to climb the ladder. Mm. And that might be the case for some individuals, but I'm speaking to more and more individuals who want to break, th- you know, free of that mold, free of that stereotype. They want to climb the ladder. Absolutely. And how do they do that? So we need inspiration. We need Aussie inspiration. You know, there's been some awesome, yes. well-known leaders, you know, we've got the Richard Bransons, the Lord Sugars, Charlotte. Uh, in Denmark, but we need to start seeing, I think, some Aussie-owned, Aussie-branded um, ND leadership to help drive that conversation as well. I agree. And and obviously, like, it's so good that we're even having this conversation because I think it does show the, the direction we're heading and how far we have come. But at the same time, I think you're absolutely right. And the other thing that I give a lot of thought to is, there. you know, it's great to see that there are more current leaders who are openly talking about their neurodivergence you know, after a career of maybe not feeling safe to disclose. And that I think is this big step that needs to happen. But the next step for me that I am so desperate to see is actually watching someone go from a junior employment job, openly disclosing, and I don't know, I don't like the word disclosure, sharing. <laughs> what are we disclosing? It's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, but it's also a safety thing, right? Uh, openly sharing their neurodivergence and actually still reaching those goals no matter what because they're still humans they have the same amount of values and challenges you know the the only real challenges we have as neurodivergent people is that we live in a world that's not set up for us like most minorities and I, I just can't wait until it becomes the norm that ADHD and autistic individuals are just killing it in the workforce getting on boards getting in government getting in power and helping really shift the narrative and kill all those stereotypes and stigma that we're trying desperately to dismantle. I feel like we're on the way. We're on the right path. We've still got so, so far to go. But I've been working in this space coming up to about nine years now and I can't believe the shift and the change and there's opportunities to connect with you and to have this discussion. Hopefully people will listen and people will take something from that as well. But the reality is there are completely agree. Still so many challenges. We're having, you know, as I said, there's finally a lot of focus on that 
recruitment side, but really very little discussion about the challenges. So I completely agree. And I want to see senior management, you know, executive buy-in sponsorship for programs as well. I want to see that awareness um, and that champion kind of concept coming right from Definitely. the top um, as well. I want to see like neurodivergence and neurodiversity policies prioritised in DNI policies and, and not necessarily that tick the box. Yes. But I want it to we said systemic cultural no tokenism yeah yeah absolutely I totally agree and uh in in saying that I I think I mentioned on our last at one of our recent episodes the talk about how there's there's a few uh autistic specific um roles being recruited for not I don't think they're in the town the cities that you and David are (laughs) no it won't name names but uh they they do so such great onboarding and recruitment for autistic individuals and then it kind of drops off and you know then we talk about retention and and you know valuing these employees and Mm. and continually supporting them not just at the introduction um and that that's where I guess my interest is probably a little bit more focused on because I think it's it's a missed area and and I don't blame people for it. I think that there's it's because of the barriers, right? It's the lack of knowledge that all of these people have on how to actually continually support their autistic staff. What can you talk to the some of the barriers that you see facing people to try, try and be valued at work, I guess? Well, and it's interesting kind of you touch on Retention, I think that's the whole concept of, again, it's mm. not just the recruitment. We've actually got to, you know, recognise uh, and appreciate the fact that there is already so much neurodivergent talent within organisations. Some people might not be aware. Some people are aware but don't feel comfortable with disclosing and some have disclosed. So that's the reality and I've been really fortunate that with my work and my role with Employee for Ability, that's what I'm actually doing quite a lot of at the moment. That's great. I'm coming in and working with individuals and I kind of love though that I have seen an increase in this, particularly from the fact that hopefully more people are feeling confident to have those discussions because I think that often is the key. And, you know, you said before, you know, like the word disclosure, but, you know, yes. talking openly about um, their neurodivergence. But I personally think it is you know, there's so many positive outcomes that can come from that. Absolutely. The changes and so forth that are often required need to happen anyway for any employee, regardless of the fact of, you know, whether or not you're neurodivergent or not. so true. But it's the conversation, if it pushes people to think in a different way and to start having those conversations, then I think there's benefits from all. And we've got this, this great resignation, this huge skill gap at the moment, and again, employers need to actually shift their focus and go, okay, what can we do to support and retain the current staff within our organisation mm-hmm. as a separate kind of avenue along with obviously get the talent to fill the roles as well, but it's being overlooked. So absolutely, I think there's lots of things organisations can do. Again, the similar theme here in all these conversations is that it costs nothing normally. Yeah. Education, awareness, capacity building is often key. For me, Mm -hmm. one of the huge keys to having those longer retention rates, you obviously talked about that back-end support, but in the first instance, actually making sure the neurodivergent individuals within your organisation are in meaningful employment. Absolutely. That's the other thing. A lot of the individuals I work with are so highly talented. Yes, some of them might need some support with soft skills, um, but I really want to see their skills recognised. It's not about making the job easier for them. These individuals can do the job. 
uh, if they've demonstrated that, but perhaps they need some tweaks and some changes. So with that education, mm-hmm. that's key to actually helping the manager understand you've got to ask the right questions. You've got to be prepared to listen. You've got to be aware that those changes or those you know accommodations can change mm. from time to time as well. Oh, that's such an important point because that's something that I, I think a lot of people struggle to understand when they, especially with um, autism, is that they, they think that, you know, if you've got maybe issues with, loud noises then you always have issues with loud noises but actually as someone myself with sensory issues around noises is it's very fluid (laughs) sometimes I can't stand even the slightest noise and other times I almost crave loud noises like if it's my favorite song I'll turn it up full blast and sing at the top of my lungs but if it's a screaming baby or a, a loud engine going past and I'm having a stressful day, then it's so much more painful. And so I, I love that you said that because these things are not fixed. And I think the complexity in that makes it really hard when you're trying to educate managers to understand that and to embrace it and support it. And the other thing that I love, I love what you and Dave do with, you know, strengths-based focus. You know, I'm, I'm all for acknowledging the struggles of, of our neurodivergent kin, but at the same time, for our mental health and our success in life, I think it's so important to to really focus in on our strengths and not make it all about just fixing where we struggle. Because as I'm sure you experience with all your clients, if you're focusing on where you are not doing well constantly, not only is that demeaning and uh, sort of pulling you down, but also it affects your mental health and it affects your ability to show up and do your job well and to shine. Uh, There's just so many things that that kind of negative focus is not helpful for anyone. Well, it's all about perspectives, isn't it? And again, that's a big part of my messaging is flipping flipping the script, flipping the narrative on how we perceive individuals. And it's, again, whether you're, you know, on the spectrum, whether you're neurodivergent, you know, whether you're not you're neurotypical, it's about taking the time to actually understand Absolutely. the person. And a really easy example is, you know, someone might observe or say, you know, that particular individual uh, in my team who's on the spectrum, I've noticed that they're really sceptical and they're always asking a lot of questions. So I guess the, the concept around that is how do you actually flip that? So how do we see that as a strength? Well, actually, perhaps they're really inquisitive. They're asking a lot of questions because they're really trying to get to the nitty gritty and that's the way their brain works. Um, and as a result, we might see some really positive outcomes. We might see innovation, out of the box thinking. They might be actually good at finding errors or improving processes to make them much more streamlined. So it's all in in perspective from, the, you know, and that's mm. us. That's where we have these unconscious bias or we need to, yeah, look at things from a different perspective. And I think that's where that concept of a strength-based approach comes from as well. Absolutely. We're honest. We know that many neurodivergent individuals do experience challenges, just like neurotypical individuals as well, but it's how we harness the strengths exactly and how we harness those strengths from a career perspective into the right role and sometimes we need to do a little bit of job carving it's not making the job easier it's playing to the individual's strengths and again that should happen across any team that's the reality of what a good manager does oh absolutely yeah and I think that's that's another area that uh I I guess I wanted to ask you about is the other thing that I think about a lot is, you know, I was only diagnosed uh, at 27 years old, no, 28. Just, I just turned 28 when I was diagnosed three years ago. And I spent the majority of my early career completely unaware of my neurodivergence and really suffering because of it. Cause I just was, I couldn't understand my brain. I had 
complex mental health from that struggle. So, and, and obviously this is a very common thing in women, right? We're late diagnosed. Uh, what about, I mean, for me, it's like if we help everyone, we'll all be lifted up and work, the, all workplaces will benefit, right? But I guess part of me worries about if we're just focusing on people who have labels uh, and diagnoses, what about, you know, 22-year-old me starting her grad job and already knowing that I would not be good at full-time work? I literally did my law thesis on flexible work practices in law firms because I was convinced that I wanted to be flexible and wouldn't be able to while still killing it at work. Killing your time. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, And back then I had a feminist slant, but yeah, clearly it wasn't that that wasn't quite the issue for me. How do how do people advocate when they might not know their own disability or their own differences? Back then, even though I didn't have all these labels and know all of this stuff, which is so helpful, especially for self-advocacy, I still knew fundamentally what I didn't want to do. And I had to do, for instance, my grad year full-time. I've worked full-time for the first few years on and off in my career, but there's no way I would have even bothered to ask the graduate recruitment team if I could work part-time in my grad year. Like that's such a competitive job. And, you know, you want to be fighting at the top with no differences. And yet where's the flexibility and diversity in that? And I, I mean, for me, I hope that grad jobs of today are actually recruiting a diverse workforce that maybe can't fit their perfect structured 10, 12 month grad program. Yeah. I digress, but that was a long question. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think like it, it comes down to, again, I know I sound like a broken record, but it comes down to awareness, capacity building. I can tell you every single time I run a general kind of autism 101 or neurodiversity general awareness training, even if there's 10 people sitting in on my session, I can guarantee you I'll get at least one or two emails from individuals going, wow, I've just had that aha light bulb moment. I always knew I was different, but I've just ticked so many of those boxes and I'm going to go and see someone or other individuals saying, I I do have a diagnosis, but I've never felt compelled to talk about it. But they can now see from that strength-based approach, it's something to be celebrated. So good. I mean, again, as we said, at the end of the day, 22-year-old you, I think a lot of people in general struggle in their 20s to find themselves. It's such that's true an interesting place to be. And I look back at myself and I, I, I share very you know a lot of similarities with you from that perspective. And I fumbled yep. along the way. And yet mm. entering my 30s, I started to actually, as corny as it sounds, but start to find myself work out how I work best. I created my yep. structure and my routine. I'm obsessed in color coding. Amazing. I've accepted things that stress me out, things that are my triggers, my stress. I love the mm-hmm. concept of energy accounting to work out what's really draining my energy and to actually accept that that's okay and it might look different for someone else absolutely then that awareness of how do I feel back up that tank as well mm. and it comes down to, to education and then getting that diagnosis really doesn't change things for a lot of people but I think it gives that that sense of worth that validation to go okay right and we keep doing things the way we've done it or we might take a deep dive and learn a lot more and more and continually have those light bulb moments yes true but if organizations proactively sought out you know organizations like us there's so many on the market to actually come in Mm -hmm. and deliver that awareness training you start the conversation internally and it's that thinking again of it's not just benefiting the neurodivergent colleagues or you know employees within the organization those tweaks those changes 
are universal. They benefit everyone. So there's so many positives, as we said, it often costs nothing. And that would have really helped you, you know, your younger self from that perspective. Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh. If, if I could have had you come in when I was a grad, I'd just, uh, please rewind the last <laughs> decade. <laughs> no, that's so, that's so great to hear. And I, I love, I love that you're taking that angle because a lot of, well, it's not a lot, but some of the stuff I see on offer is very targeted at just supporting neurodivergent workers or just supporting managers of neurodivergent employees. And the thing that worries me about that is it's, it's not a widespread awareness and education and inclusion. So I like that you said that you you talk to multiple people, not necessarily neurodivergent people, because how many of them are sitting there unaware of their own neurodivergence or their family's neurodivergence or even just their own team members that maybe don't even know themselves. Like there's such an issue in the health system right now with access to diagnosis. And so I feel like you're almost helping that in a way because that spreading of education and awareness is getting more people to have the aha moments that might send them down the path of actually researching it and realizing that it's so much more than what we all might initially think from, you know, the Rain Man stereotypes of the world. Even, you know, love on the spectrum, which I... I I've tried to watch multiple times and I can't do it. I just, (laughs) the reason I even try is my neurotypical friends tell me about it and how great it is. So I have to, I'm like, okay, well, I'll watch it. But I just don't feel represented in it. No, You know, I don't want to criticize the show. I think the fact that it exists is all um, education is is positive, right? Yeah. I I must say I'm a huge fan of the show. Are you? Because because of the fact that it gets people talking and it is still, it's going away from the right man it's going away from that's a good point that big bang theory i just i'm all for starting the conversation mm-hmm. same as we've got love on the spectrum i've got um employable me i think for so many people we forget because we live and breathe and this is our special interest true but for so many people they're not exposed so mm-hmm. for me if it just gets one person yeah. thinking about it more or having empathy and that awareness yeah so yeah maybe I'm biased no no I think that's such a good point and I think it's you're right it's so easy to forget you know we're so deeply in this community that if for us we see all the nuances that might not be so clean in how it's produced or spoken about How do you go about uh, helping workplaces understand neuroaffirming language and, you know, how to really make their employees feel like it is a difference and not a disorder and and really help shift that focus into the positive in a, in a more practical way, I guess? Yeah. So, again, it, it, is, it is education and training and, and yeah. allowing people to also understand that each and every individual who is neurodivergent is going to present differently uh, and they're going to have different preferences over language as well. You know, if you, you know, LinkedIn, we always, you know, often see debates about person first, identity first, and everyone has different preferences. So I think it again comes down to that awareness piece to actually understand that everyone does have a different preference, you know, within that space, just like pronouns and so forth for individuals as well. And I love the fact that we can take the time to consider other people's preferences and to, um, I guess, show more emotion and empathy from that perspective as well. But often people don't think about it Mm. till there's that opportunity to have the discussion, to sit and have training and then walk away and go, wow, maybe we should be having that conversation with a team member that we're aware is neurodivergent to actually 
ask them, hey, what am I like as a manager? Could I do things differently? Am I presenting information in a way that works for you? What's your preferred communication? Would you actually prefer me to send you instructions via email rather than just saying them through the, you know, the Zoom teleconference? Again, costs nothing, but you're just literally taking the time to go, wow, actually everyone's different. Everyone's, you know, presenting in a different way, has their own unique ways of working. And let's actually um, recognize that, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. And broaden our minds to how there is so much diversity in communication as well. I I love what you mentioned about uh, pronouns, because for me, uh, another thing that I, I talk to people about is with disclosure or sharing your diagnosis at work, a lot of the time, and this has definitely been my experience, but more broadly, I see there's a lot of women that talk to me about this is that they they go into work, they tell them, you know, I'm autistic and ADHD and works so lovely about it. Yep, cool. How can we help? But then I guess the weight is still on them to get into the more nitty gritty details about how that could affect work and what maybe adjustments they need because so many workplaces aren't equipped. You know, I would just love a, a, all workplaces is to have like a go-to policy of these are the themes that you might want to address with your neurodiverse employees. Like, you know, are you meeting their sensory profile needs? Uh, Are you communicating in a way that's helpful to their mental health? And there's not even that framework in so many of these workplaces. And so even though there's this really positive embrace, I guess, that they give you when you, when you, well, hopefully, (laughs) hopefully everyone's experiencing that. Yeah. (laughs) But most people I've heard from do, it, it just sort of stops there and I mean for me you don't get someone to tell you their pronouns and then just ask them why they made that decision or what does that actually mean right but yet when we're asked okay you're autistic but how <laughs> like or, or, or a lot of women especially get the oh but you don't look autistic or oh you can't be autistic which mm-hmm. people think is a compliment misconceptions. yeah misconceptions <laughs> when it's actually rather insulting because there is no look and we all mm. externally show our autistic traits very differently and sometimes barely at all. (laughs) So I guess, how do you find that balance or how would you recommend to your clients to try to sort of openly say where they might need support without feeling like they have to really expose their, their deepest vulnerabilities and struggles especially like maybe if you're in a new workplace and you don't have that really trusting relationship yet and I don't know how do you how do you sort of talk about what your needs are without also I guess needing to justify how bad you experience something like if I say I prefer emails but I can do phone calls like in emergency or if it's necessary and then my boss calls me with out an emergency obviously then I, I'd, I'd say well can we do an email right but if that's happening multiple times how you know is it on me to say so I don't like phone calls because I have an auditory processing issue and I have to use a lot of mental energy to try and hear what you're saying, especially if I can't see your lips. And on top of that, I have ADHD and working memory issues. So I probably forget half of what you say. And then I feel anxious about that because I need to remember it and do whatever you've spoken to me about. So there's like, and that's only the the top of the iceberg of why I don't enjoy phone calls for work. Um, But, you know, how much do they just have to accept this is our preference versus, well, do you really need that? How is it like a a no brainer? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. I think the reality is that we still do 
have a long way to go as far as that educating managers to understand. And I think a good manager wants to learn. They'll put up their hand and go, I'm sorry, I had no idea that for you, the high, you know, screech of a baby actually causes physical pain. It's it's the education. A good manager has empathy and understands that. What I really try to do and, and empower with clients I work with is to be able to advocate for themselves because not so, doesn't necessarily just mean vocally advocating, True. but to actually stop for a minute and like get some paper, start to actually think about how you work best. What type of managers have you worked best with? What was their style of working with mm. you? What don't I like in roles or what do I like in roles and start to compile that list and you know at Employ for Ability we've created a tool that allows us to come in when we're working with clients and to have that one-to-one with the neurodivergent individual and to pull apart their strengths and also to actually have a look at some of the challenges they don't have to share that they can keep it for themselves and they can continually use it as a working document and edit it whenever they require and as things change things might become more relevant or less relevant and so forth but if they feel comfortable that could even be something they could have the environment's right to actually sit down with their boss or with their supervisor and to say you know as you're aware um identify as being on the autism spectrum i want to you know educate you or just talk to you a little bit about how i experience the world uh, and again to focus and have your conversation from a positive i love that you might have noticed that the things in my job i do really well are mm. x y and z but sometimes on the flip side uh, and then x y and z you know what i mean so to actually better advocate but come from a strength base let them know what you're doing really well and how that manifests in you but we're all human yes naturally there are elements of roles that we might struggle with or that don't come naturally and just to have that awareness of me sitting in a teleconference for an hour and then going back to back to a few more that might tip me over the edge or you know I might need a break between Mm. just advocating for yourself and it doesn't have to be a lecture it just has to be little small pieces of information you don't have to share it with the team but I personally do love when an organization is truly inclusive and oh absolutely and has established where you can actually feel you're in that safe environment to not just talk to your boss but to actually advocate within your team and say hi I work with you um I'm going to tell you a little bit more about myself talk about your interests talk about your strengths Mm. not just from but not just from work but talk about what excites you outside of work it might help with small talk um and other elements as well and for them also to gauge wow okay so you're quite good at that maybe there's other elements that we haven't yet explored within the role that you might be good at the way your mind works and is wired and the efficiency and so forth as well so it is hard again you shouldn't have to go to that level of detail but I'd like to think we're on that journey towards allowing for these types of conversations if it's not with your manager to have that type of conversation with HR people and culture and so forth uh, and for it to be embraced and recognized absolutely that's so good to hear and such a important lens I guess to have in feeling empowered. probably know about this as an adhd but rejection sensitivity is something that especially adhd is experience quite a bit some of us i do <laughs> and a lot of adhd as i talk to do uh, we bond over it all the time and one of the things about that is any sort of even 
perceived rejection hits us so much more strongly and painfully than what someone without rejection sensitivity would experience. And I remember uh, I was in my third rotation as a grad and I was doing my performance review and I got outstanding and I loved my boss. It was one of my favorite jobs. And she did the whole compliment sandwich thing, I think, where she was saying all my good stuff. Then she said one thing I needed to work on and then added some more good stuff. And the one thing I needed to work on wasn't even bad. I literally can't remember it, but it was not even what you focused on. <laughs> but oh my God, I literally, she, she said, are you, are you okay? Cause I teared up. <laughs> Because I think I was just so braced to hear what was not going well because I, I remember that was a time in my life where I was very anxious at work and heavily masking, not that I knew it. And this was a very engagement focused role. So it was a little bit out of my comfort zone uh, in terms of acting like I was very confident and uh, good at engaging with people, even though I preferred not to do it face to face that often. And I remember like on my first week in the job, I said to my supervisor when they gave me a task to find out some information, I was like, oh, do I just email this person? And they're like, no, just pick up the phone. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) And I went back to my desk and I just sat there like, oh my God, I don't want to talk to these people. I I don't know them. I barely know the subject matter. This is going to be so painful. And I did it, you know, we pushed through, but at a steep cost of severe anxiety and and energy depletion and that's the problem isn't it yeah and I just wish back then it would have been okay and I would have seen someone else in the workplace say no my preferred communication is email so even though you think it might be faster to call someone I'm just going to email them without it being questioned you know I don't need to say I'm neurodivergent I don't need to say any of that stuff that I have anxiety it's just a thing everyone has preferences every human likes different things right 100% I think it's sometimes fear of change or we've always done it this way yeah So why should we change it now Mm -hmm. Um, as well? But also, you know, you can look at that from a different perspective and perhaps your manager could have said for whatever reason it is actually maybe from a time critical sense really important that you need to make phone calls. But then how about helping you develop a script? And it might be several script. Here's the script. If the conversation goes this way, here's the script and practicing that. And that can often help because I've successfully placed individuals into roles that are similar to like a call center environment where stereotypically you'd go, oh, yeah, I don't know how that would go with someone on the spectrum, but had really great results because again, it's about getting to know that individual. And I find that often, not always, but often when I'm working with clients that are you know diagnosed with autism, but also have that ADHD diagnosis, sometimes we see some really exciting synergies. Yeah. And some of those individuals have been really successful in those types of roles. So, yeah. and maybe it wasn't right for you, but mm. there's always a solution. And if they had have just had a conversation with you, regardless of actually stating I'm neurodivergent, there's always ways to work around things. But that's where that open communication again, not making mm. assumptions, asking you, do you have any ideas? And, you know, and having that back and forth conversation, I think, you know, really would have been key in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's so uh, helpful to hear because I think it really does push home the need to put some infrastructure in place and, you know, help these neurodi- or all, all employees really help them build their confidence and skills. Because I actually do enjoy that type of role, but it's always takes me a little while at the start to learn the lay of the land, like all roles and all people, but in a little bit more of a anxiety ridden way because the consequence if someone else stuffs up is 
oh, well, you're learning. But the consequence I've experienced continuously, pervasively my whole life has been, why'd you do that? That's so weird. So a lot of, you know, masking is basically uh, looking at, yeah, you know this, but looking around and watching how everyone behaves and mimicking them. And I'm really good at that, but I need time. And so, you know, I think it was more about I was thrown into that role and I didn't know how to advocate for myself and say, oh, you know, can you maybe give me more details about that area or uh, how much do I actually need to, you know, there, like there's so many more nuances of if we just felt safe to ask these questions without judgment, that would be so great. <laughs> Oh, 100%. Right. And, and again, I think we're, we're, on the, we're on the journey. We're on the pathway Absolutely. to getting there. And I think the fact that we have social media, access to the internet and for individuals to read and learn if they're interested and to know how to, you know, Google search, how to approach these conversations, to go onto blogs yes. and actually hear from other people with lived experience where you can relate to and have that conversation and bounce off ideas. I think we're very lucky. Or podcasts. You know, podcasts, brilliant little, um, yeah. yeah throw that one in absolutely but we didn't have that 20 years ago either and people didn't talk about it I love Google and YouTube (laughs) can you imagine like my obsession at night is sitting there on Instagram and just reading my oh yes um looking at memes and absorbing information but us 20 years ago we didn't have that so what does excite me is that I think the future is really positive I think we're finally seeing this same shift you know around the business case around neurodiversity we're starting to see a shift with people as we said before not necessarily ticking the box but actually proactively coming to an organization such as employability wanting to access this talent we've got that great resignation the skill gap crisis we talked about earlier but even more simply we know that there's all this data to say you know neurodivergent individuals are often found to be more productive we see lower absenteeism we get these loyal honest staff we talked about those strengths before that out of the box thinking you know identifying errors innovation you know streamlining processes Mm. there's so many benefits from that perspective but we've still just got to get organizations to come to the party and also not just the big you know the big organizations yes they should be showing us and leading the way but we also want to you know come down and have these conversations with the smaller businesses as well and I I think that's how we're going to create change to have this messaging in the school systems as well and to have Mm. you know these supports like what you know David and the team in Canberra running with the SLES programs at the moment to give people hope that there's support, that there is opportunities for them in the future yeah. for meaningful employment and really kind of focusing on their on their special interests because that's such a yeah. big component as well of being neurodivergent. But how can we actually... Mm and thriving yeah all, all of those elements kind of come into key and I think for a lot of parents there that we speak to as well just to have that hope because everyone wants the best for their children yeah, as well definitely. but just to know that they can get meaningful employment they can feel supported they can disclose without that bias or those stigma and so forth as well absolutely One thing that people are going to judge me for probably <laughs> is uh, I, my husband, I've been with my partner since we were in second year uni, so I've much far over a decade. And something that we've had conversations over the years about is that I've tried to explain to him that I can't just work. I need to do work that really makes me want to get up in the morning. And I know that that's probably 
a human experience. But for me, it's like I literally can't work if it's not something I care about. (laughs) And now I'm starting to realize that that's probably a little bit more special interest, demand avoidance-esque, which I very much have. But he was like, oh, you clearly just never been poor enough, (laughs) like, which is true. I mean, I've got all the privilege in that element. But at the same time, I feel like if I really was struggling financially, which I have, it still wouldn't be enough. No one, I mean, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. No one wants to work just to work. Oh, absolutely. We want to work to have meaningful lives and to feel valued and to have a purpose, right? I just feel like mine's a little bit more extreme, (laughs) maybe. I don't think it's much. I actually um, met with someone yesterday and we had a similar coffee and she was really open and shared her experience of earlier careers she's now had a you know a career changer saying how much she struggled and was a very high achiever and a very intelligent lady but went down a path and then just realized how it didn't suit her interests yes she might have been good at it but she didn't get anything back from it and she said the same in hindsight look I was suffering from anxiety. I was quite depressed and is now so grateful that in time she's come to where she's working now and doing an amazing job and set up her own successful company as well. And I think, as you say, not everyone is fortunate enough to choose an area. I think a lot of people that work within the disability or healthcare space are often, um, you know, underpaid for sure. It's work that we do because we love what we do. We want to advocate. We generally want to create change. And it attracts the right people often for that reason as well which I think is a, a great thing if you can be in a position and we've all had jobs that haven't worked out for various reasons but that's another part I think that's been quite nice as we grow and we change and we reflect to go where am I happiest and I think when you're happiest you, you work harder you know you're happy to put in the extra hours and to go above and beyond because you enjoy the work and if it's you know affecting yeah. in a positive way your mental health and well-being to me it's just a win-win-win yeah I agree I I think that raises an interesting point though because I, I have a experienced the flip side in jobs where I loved the work so much that I really struggled to set boundaries and and was just working 24-7 and ended up burning out after a year. And I think that's something to to be aware of as well uh, is that it's it's so important to do jobs that you know are meaningful for us. But at the same time, if you are that passionate about your work, which is so so great, and God, I hope more people have that experience in life because it's it's just life affirming, right? You really do need to learn the balance and the boundaries, and and still keep your health decently. <laughs> that's not a that's a terrible. Sentence. I'm probably guilty of that myself. Yeah. <laughs> But I, you know, but I think as you say, the key is health. And I think what's great is a lot of organisations have flexibility. So sometimes it's also going, there might be moments in the day where I'm not working at my best, but you might come to life at night or you might have a young family and you might have school commitments. And I think a lot of organisations get more from their employers when they have that flexible approach. Definitely. And that's been one of the beauties. Of COVID. (laughs) COVID, yeah, it's created a lot of issues and challenges, absolutely. But Silver lining. Yeah. It's been a huge blessing in my life, uh, absolutely. And I, I really hope that post-COVID, if that exists, all of the amazing flexible work practices that have come in stay there, like regardless of a pandemic, regardless of germs. Let's keep them happening because I just think they are the future of work, right? Is that flexible, inclusive, adaptable workforce? A hundred percent. And again, it's taking the time to realise that 
each individual, again, is going to have different preferences. I'm working with a lot of um, agencies at the moment that have those mandates, again, to get staff into the office, say, for example, three days a week. And that can be really challenging because it has. Research has shown that overall we are seeing higher productivity rates. Yes, perhaps on the flip side there has been increased burnout, but we're learning to adapt. I guess the challenge is creating that team culture and what that looks like as well. But I do think it needs to be a case-by-case basis. And, again, that awareness piece that for some neurodivergent individuals they're now living their best lives they can create a work environment that allows them to focus that allows them to thrive and so forth they have to worry about peak hour traffic and commute and so forth you know so there are so many positives from that perspective so I think the next 12 months will be really telling and I think again just like we're talking earlier it has to be continually reviewed you can't say a one-stop shop this is going to affect everyone with this blanket approach and it has to be reviewed talk to your staff notice changes and if you suddenly notice heightened stress or anxiety you know has coming back into the office triggered for that individual as well what can we do differently is it actually really important that they come in three days a week or what does that look like and again having those conversations around that and that awareness Mm. that it's not going to work for everyone yeah and I I like how you said that because I think another thing that applies to everyone is is with this positive move towards managing wellness and mental health at work is sometimes and a lot of times people think they know what that looks like and especially with neurodivergent folk it's not always the obvious answer so you know some people might say I'll go on a holiday or have some leave or you know, whatever you want to call it, but maybe all they needed was, I don't know, to work from home or to do a little bit more of this type of work and a little bit less of that type of work. Like let, let's keep it an open dialogue where they're asked, you know, I want to feel like I can go to my boss and say, I'm stressed, I'm struggling. And then instead of my boss saying, okay, well, you need to take leave because we can't handle people having mental breakdowns. Why can't they turn around and and I hope this is becoming more normal and say, okay, how can I support you? What's the best way we can put some frameworks in place that makes you feel like you can keep going and just keep it a very broad. And it just keeping it in that open-ended question is, I think, so important for all workers, but especially neurodivergent workers who might really just need a certain tweak to their work to be able to go back to being at a healthy sort of wellness level. Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, all of us, kind of experienced at one stage that that burnout that fatigue that COVID fatigue because it was yes. just this constant roller coaster and emotions and right. you know the media portraying it in a certain light and so forth and I feel like we're coming out of that fog now so it is that perfect opportunity as you say to have True. those discussions again and make it meaningful have they have these one-to-one conversations and see where it leads to from that perspective yeah I totally agree Going back to rejection sensitivity, which is obviously something that I... We did digress. (laughs) Yeah, to to digress. No, no, no. Oh, no, no, that wasn't digressing. That was great conversation. Um, (laughs) But I had another question on rejection sensitivity. So what I was thinking about rejection sensitivity, and this is probably not a really obvious link to it, but for me, on the flip side of rejection sensitivity, I have thrived in jobs that have been very safe and affirming 
So, for example, I had a boss uh, once who she was quite a slow talker and my hyperactivity is like chat, chat, chat. Yeah. I can't <laughs> wait for you to finish your sentence. I'm impulsive, so I'll cut you off. And and that's really hard for me to control. I can control it and I usually mostly control it if I'm with someone who obviously hates it or is irritated by it, which I can pick up on despite what people think about autistic people not being able to read social cues. And <laughs> she always talked like this <laughs> and I, I adored her she's a great boss and I would always cut her off and she never cared she was so positive about it it was just there was no judgment there was no annoyance there was no anger I mean I, I feel like that's quite rare I have to say I think you did have a, a great gem there <laughs> right she was brilliant and and most of the time it was because when I generally finish someone's sentence 90% of the time I'm on the money of what they're trying to say. So generally she'd just be like, yes, and then move on. And so it wasn't really like a, oh, I'm jarring her thoughts. And I'm not saying everyone has to be like this. That's, I think, quite unique. But what I'm saying with this example is that I think if we can, in a way to manage rejection sensitivity and, and build trust for neurodivergent staff, I think we need to proactively try to make them feel safe enough to unmask and be themselves at work because it's all those microaggressions and you know, micro discrimination behaviors that you might not think they see, but we see, you know, if you're getting shitty because we're asking too many questions or because we're taking things too literally or whatever it is, that stuff builds up. And that's kind of why rejection sensitivity exists, right? Is that you just get so many little niggles that you're like, I'm going to explode. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I think, you know, for me, I want to be able to work for someone who I feel safe enough to be myself and not be judged for it. I mean, you can get annoyed sometimes, that's fine. But overall, to feel like you're in an environment where you're accepted for who you are, regardless of how different or slightly irritating or quirky or whatever you want to call it, that might be. Well, that's, I think, ultimately, one of the biggest driving factors for success for neurodivergent employees is having an understanding manager. Yeah, That's the reality we want you know, particularly, say, from a recruitment lens, if I'm ever helping uh, on board and find talent for an organisation, one of the first things I'll say is, you know, have you identified the manager? The last thing you want is for a role to be available, but the manager to have not been involved in the discussions and to be tapped on the shoulder and kind of, surprise, you're going to have this new employee in your team. You want, on the flip side, to run a training program, yeah. you know, that awareness session and to see at the end, you know, is anyone interested in becoming involved and to have people that proactively get it, that want to learn, that will put up their hand and say, I don't know everything, but I want to come on this journey yeah. with you. Mm -hmm. That's when we get the best results. And they're the managers, again, like you were saying earlier, that ask the right questions, not just for the neurodivergent individual and their team. For everyone. But for everyone. Mm -hmm. And and then we get these great outcomes and we get this amazing you know, retention rate as well. And I think if we go right back to the beginning of the conversation, one of the things you talked about was, you know, as we said, there's sometimes this focus on recruiting neurodivergent talent, which, again, I think is really important. So important. Mm -hmm. and we talked about retaining talent. But as we started talking, you know, what does retaining talent look like? And we talked about some of those touch points. But I think, again, what organisations like Employability, and, again, there's many out there that do similar, is that that ongoing support and that education piece is gently interwoven. So it's not your stereotypical training in a room or online, but it's often those coaching and mentoring sessions and 
being proactive and reactive. So depending on the situation mm. and you know, working through certain elements that become available in the workplace and then talking through what could you do differently? What type of strategies you, can you implement? And I think often if we have that type of support, you know, ideally for the first six to 12 months of that new employee's time, everyone becomes a winner. Yes. You get that retention rate. You get a manager that gets how to support individuals and can hopefully apply those basic, I guess, best practice principles across all of mm. their work. And you have an employee that feels valued and therefore thrives as well. So I'd love Definitely. to see that happen more as well to actually go, not just are we, you know, sourcing talent, but what mechanisms are in place to make sure that individual thrives and what can we learn from those situations as well. And again, I think that's where we get that long-term success and those benefits that ripple through the organisation. Oh, I totally agree. That sort of makes me think of another thing about, I don't know, you've probably heard this because you're an employment nerd like me, but uh, you know how they say uh, women, studies show that women will not apply for a job unless they tick all five boxes, whereas men will apply if they tick even three. But pulling it into, I guess, a neurodivergent lens is for me and my own experience and what I've heard from uh, my neurokin is that we, I think it's even more of a, it's almost like, I'll bring it back to me because I obviously don't speak for all, all our community, but um, it's hard, I think, and it's important about, I'm trying to get to career progression, right, and leadership. Yeah. So in order to make us leaders and give us opportunities, I think organizations need to be aware that we potentially need more help with like career coaching and and knowing what opportunities we can go for or how to develop skills into the direction we want to head a little bit more so than say women need and other minorities need, you know, from all the research backing that. I, I think that it would be good for organisations to, you know, do all the things we've spoken about and, you know, recruit well, retain well, value your employees, support them in every way, but equally empower them, empower them to grow and succeed I mean, at the end of the day, growth is the opposite to, you know, trauma and safety, survive, flight freeze type of thing. We want we want growth, open mindedness. We want to be able to reach the opportunities that for so long have been so hard for us to do in our authentic way because of the environment that has existed that's changing. Yeah, to get to the top without masking, mm, to get to the top. Exactly. And to stand proud and to be able to share those stories. Exactly. Um, is the key. But again, what something you touched on the way my brain works, I'm jumping back Yeah, I love in. it. Do it, do it. I have to keep up with me. Um, ADHD is people. Yeah, it's kicking in, it's kicking in, so is the coffee. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things you said to me just before was the fact that, you know, stereotypically a lot of women will read a job description. I think, you know, the essence there and the messaging as well is from a neurodivergent lens, we have major, major barriers with those job descriptions for neurodivergent. Oh, I completely agree. We think about how they're written and the jargon and the terminology and we have these stipulations of the must-have qualifications. And I can assure you, you pick up one now and you do a Google search, the first one that comes up, it will tell you you need excellent communication skills. Yes, so we true. We know that a lot of neurodivergent individuals will very openly and honestly admit that perhaps they haven't got excellent communication skills and they might tick every other one of those qualifications or must-haves, but because they can't do that, it's that black and white literal thinking that they might not apply. So that's where we have these barriers. Before we even talk about that interview stage, we have barriers, we have resumes and CVs that don't necessarily accurately reflect 
our skills. We don't have that opportunity to explain why there's big gaps or why a particular employment only lasted three months because Mm. it clearly perhaps wasn't the right environment for that individual or it perhaps was um, not meaningful employment as well. And then if we're lucky enough to jump through the barrier of the job advert and so forth and and the CV screening and we get to an interview, then again, we know that there's all these hurdles and barriers. So I guess, and I'm sure you'll agree, what else we need to see is that realisation that we need to move away from these traditional recruitment barriers and to actually recognise how much amazing talent organisations are missing out on at the moment because of the fact that they're still using this traditional recruitment lens. I couldn't agree more. And it it does. It frustrates me greatly. And, again, I love that we're starting to see organisations celebrate these different pathways. And there's not – everyone takes a slightly different approach. But I guess the common element in the way a lot of organisations are – trying to proactively get ahead of the the game is actually identifying again what strengths individuals have and how can we actually showcase those skills in a practical capacity Mm. that's relevant for the job. And again, I love that that's also where sometimes that journey and education piece commences for the organisation and for talent and, you know, people and culture and so forth because they're actually going, wow, on paper, I'll be honest, you know, I might not have ever given this individual a chance when I looked at their CV, but they have been able to demonstrate meaningful capacity mm. to do this role and, and giving that opportunity for creativity. You don't necessarily have to present back the project or the task in a set way. It might be that they create a PowerPoint presentation. They create a physical working model. They create a website. Let's see how we can you know, harness those talents. And I can assure you many a times I've had an employer go, wow, Mm. this has just blown my mind. And now you start to fear how much talent you've missed out on. Eye-opening. By tweaking that process. So I hope again in Australia we start to see those opportunities. Sometimes I think there's still pushback from HR. I get some really excited managers saying, I want to do this. I recognise, I value neurodivergent talent, but they're unfortunately often you know, get halted in that process because of HR. And we can't do that because mm. we've always done it this way and so forth. But very rigid. I'm hoping that we start to see a change, that we start to be able to actually provide mm. avenues to do things a little bit differently and then to celebrate, I guess, that success. I agree. Um, from that perspective and to see the learnings and we can teach soft skills you know there's something that again they can be taught those unwritten rules of the workplace the social etiquette and so forth that not all individuals might have and then we piece that together with that education piece and that awareness of this individual might not make eye contact with you Mm. but the reason why is that they're actually processing what you're saying uh, and so forth or this individual might be masking yeah, they're not being rude. Yeah, that's right. But again, it seems so obvious for you. And I know, I, but for that, yeah, I know. In this space, but sometimes it's saying this individual might not pick up on body language when you signal and look at your watch that you need to wrap up the conversation. They might completely miss that cue oh, yeah. and continue to follow you. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and that's you know, masking in a nutshell is that I prefer absolutely not to look you in the eye because I have to. I'm trying to think and listen and that takes so much more away from that it's not for me I don't really find eye contact painful which is a common you know stereotype of autism I just don't find it useful (laughs) like it's just distracting and yet 
you know, the microaggressions I've experienced my whole life of when I haven't given eye contact and people overtly look pissed off and start to trying to like walk away from a conversation that was previously going really well, just based on the eye contact, no changes. Uh, it's it's that sort of thing that I think knowing these things would really help. You just let people be themselves and be different. It's not that hard. <laughs> Embrace difference. Absolutely. Embrace difference. Exactly. Oh, I could talk to you all days. Thank <laughs> you so, so much. It's so great to pick your brain. Oh, I've loved it. So I could oh, keep going as well. You. It seems like we uh, think the same way, which is nice. Yes, we're definitely on the same wavelength. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, not ask, uh, I kind of wanted to uh, raise this as something, is this something that you notice? Because something for me, I guess, is being such an honest person and, and valuing honesty as one of my very key core values always has been and social justice and such. One of the things I've struggled with in my career is being able to talk myself up because I own like and this is a thing that what you were just saying really triggered this in me was I think neurodivergent people are very quick to talk themselves down and to undersell themselves you know and that makes sense after a lifetime of basically being told by the world that you're weird or different or whatever you want to call it whatever label is term but for me it, it was very much a I, I felt so physically uncomfortable with stretching any truth and, and a lot of job applications and recruitment, it is selling yourself. Like it's not lying, but it's also a gray area of maybe making yourself sound a little bit better than you truly were or that you think you were because I think how I view myself is always far worse than everyone else does. Um, is that something that you you experience with your clients? So common. And it's even in its rawest form, so many individuals I work with actually don't have awareness of their amazing skills and strength. So it's not about that. It's actually how to sell yourself and actually acknowledging if you're asked a question like, for example, what do you like at Excel? Some individuals I work with say, oh, I'm okay. The reality is they're beyond advanced users of Excel, the way they can manipulate data and, you know, macros and use that information to tell a story. That's a gift. Yes. That's not something the average individual can do. But for a lot of individuals I work with, because it's come naturally and it's all they've done, it's it's actually honestly lacking that awareness of, oh, okay, so I do. I do have some strengths here. I do have some gifts that I could bring to the organization and it comes down to sometimes that that filter and that unawareness mm. and it also comes down to perhaps not having the opportunity to transfer those skills into the workforce because they haven't been given that opportunity to experience employment so how can those amazing skills you know for example we've worked with an individual who took part in what they cl claimed as ethical hacking amazing absolute masterminds that would sit in their bedroom and could bring down the you know the highest of um, security walls for fun oh we didn't do anything it's harmless okay how can we take those individuals that have this amazing skill, we can bring that to government organisations and, you know, use them in their cyber teams as well, but they haven't had work experience. A lot of individuals I work with um, don't even necessarily have a qualification or degree, but they've set up where they've bought on eBay or online, like computer servers, and their whole room is, you know, blows my mind when I'm on a video call and I look in the background or, you know, from a young age they've been tinkering and pulling mm. things apart and putting them back together. But how do you put that on a resume? I know, like uh, my special interest gave me a PhD in ABC, but I've got no qualifications for it. I'm just better than everyone at it. <laughs> how do you say that? Exactly, exactly. And that 
that's again why if we can start to actually go okay so how can I assess these skills you know for you Annie in a different way what how can you actually Mm -hmm. show me so don't tell me what you can do show me what we can do and I think that's a way, a different way of looking at it to help bridge that gap. I'm sure if, you know, in your particular area of expertise, look, you, you know, you're creating these amazing podcasts and so forth. That's not something that everyone can do and to know how to edit and refine and so forth. Mm. Um, you know, how do you channel that skill? You know, we see individuals that are fantastic on the social media and understanding the analytics and so forth. How do we mm. channel that? And, again, it comes back to what we talked about earlier. How do we identify neurodivergent individuals' special interests and how do we use those to funnel it into a meaningful career? And as I said, often in my experience, those individuals become champions. They become subject matter experts. They have an interest to hyper-focus and to absorb copious amounts of information on that topic because they enjoy it True. and so forth. So that's a long-winded answer saying, you know, how do we... No, I love it. So good. How do we come back to that? So... Let's hope that we in the future can see out-of-the-box ways as well of assessing and identifying talent. And as a result, we're going to see better retention rates and outcomes because of the fact that we have actually seen firsthand this individual is not telling me they can do it and selling it to themselves. They're actually showing me Mm. their impact that they could make within the organisation and the degree in which they've actually understood the task at hand. Yeah. And I hope that, you know, neurodivergent people listening to this can resonate with this and can maybe even just reflect on their own talents and learn to really, or seek help with how to sell themselves because we are full of talent and sometimes we just need to know how to sell it in a neurotypical way. Advocate, as we said before, I think learning to advocate, actually stopping exactly. and learning about what makes you brilliant. Also identifying, yet yeah, what are my challenges, but actually going, what do I enjoy? What do I excel at? Ask people, if you're not sure, ask your mum, ask your friend, ask an ex-colleague for some honest yes. um, advice on where your strengths are because sometimes we can't see it ourselves and we might find we get some really insightful information that we can sit on reflect on and then again channel that into our job search absolutely Uh, I have one more question for you and I probably left the a difficult one to the end how well I guess when you're dealing with organizations and supporting them to support neurodivergent talent how many of them not so many how many of them but is there quite a trend to put autistic people in maybe more stereotyped roles like STEM or I mean STEM is probably the most obvious one one thing that I I really hope doesn't happen is that people want to put us in these boxes and think oh well we're really good at IT so let's all become you know hackers and gamers and I know David talks about this and creativity and such um, but I guess for me to be truly inclusive as a workforce we need to be able to access all jobs not just ones that might look outwardly like they would benefit our specific skill set or neurotype. I think so. And again, Um, yeah, I was curious what you thought. Oh, a great question. So again, something I'm really passionate about. I think the reality is that we do have a lot of individuals who are neurodivergent that do enjoy IT related work. And I think that's where it originally stemmed from. And it was originally, it was a great positive. Haha, stem. Good pun. You know what I mean? I personally, no interest at all. Absolutely useless as well. But I think where where it literally came from was this concept that we did have a lot of individuals who had an active interest in that space. And we know historically that we do get success 
So if we're ever piloting a recruitment, you know, neurodiverse recruitment program, we know that we get success. One, we know there's a lot of roles because there's a skill shortage. And two, we know that we get success. So we call that like a safe landing place. We know we're going to get success when an organisation wants to dip their toe in the water and just see what it's like. My hope is, and something I'm really trying to advocate for, is absolutely demonstrating and singing the praises that neurodivergent individuals can exceed and have succeeded in a really wide variety of roles. We need those roles available. And again, it's about working backwards, getting to know the individual, what makes them tick, where do their strengths lie, what does an ideal role look for them, and then looking at kind of job carving and working backwards to match that individual. And the same, but I want to see higher representation of neurodivergent women as well because we're still seeing um, a high rate of applicants from individuals who are neurodivergent that are male. We know those females are there. We need to spread the word. We need where are you women? To start Get out of the covers. Women, speak up. Out of the <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> Comment on this podcast yes. if you're a neurodivergent woman yourself as well because we need to start putting our hands up, not being ashamed and advocating, as I said, for ourselves as well. Mm. I've had a lot of success placing individuals into a wide range of roles, but I'm my own worst enemy in that we're often, well, I'm often so busy, I don't have an opportunity to stop and actually celebrate it and to write case studies and to reflect because you kind of hit the ground running. But that's on me and I need to do that more and I need to make sure I'm actually capturing. Oh, you're too busy changing changing the system. That's that's (laughs) okay. But, you know, but that's the reality. It, it is actually happening. Yeah, true. But a lot of these bigger companies that are placing, you know, IT talent, neurodivergent IT talent, they're getting the coverage. But we are having lots and lots of wins in roles, in roles like project management recently where I've seen some amazing success. I talked about customer service, customer-facing roles. We know that individuals have been successful in the performing arts. I've worked a lot with individuals who are creative geniuses thinking graphic design, videotography. Um, You talked about uh, love on the spectrum. I actually placed someone behind the scenes as an editor. Amazing. Who's neurodivergent and from what I hear, keeping in touch with the producer is still doing amazing results. And I love that as well. I do too. I think that they've definitely come a long way in getting more neurodivergent people on the show and behind the scenes, which is great. I just think in general, we have neurodivergent individuals coming into a really vast range of roles. So maybe that's on you and I to yeah. for your next podcast to interview someone that bucks that trend, someone that's yeah. openly disclosed that they're neurodivergent and what type of role yeah. are they in? Um, I'm supporting someone that I've known for a long time at the moment. Um, a shout out to her. Um, I hope she doesn't mind, but Kathy, um, I won't say her surname, but an absolute genius and very intelligent woman um, who I think really highly of. Tell Kathy to come on the show. She can be anonymous if she wants. Oh, I would love her too, and she would be amazing. She is a really successful author. Amazing. She runs one of Australia's um, most um, well-known and profitable vegan magazines as well. We need her, individuals like her, to showcase her strengths and her skills and so forth as well, and to start talking about some of the challenges she's experienced, but as also some of the triumphs as well because that's an area magazine publishing you know that we don't hear about enough and I think yeah I think she's made a really amazing impression in a positive way in Australia and you know that's just one you know one story to highlight amazing amazing I uh well she's more than welcome on the show uh anyone actually listening if you want to come on the show hit me up Happy to bring you on anonymously, 
promote your work. If you're a neurodivergent woman or even gender diverse person, I would love to promote you guys and share your brilliant stories. I guess we should wrap that up and I should let you get back to your very important work. Thank you so much for being here, Kate. I have just loved every minute of this conversation and I know my listeners will get a lot out of it as well just like I have so thank you oh thank you for the kind words it's been my pleasure thank you for doing what you're doing and creating this I guess this really important space and environment for people to learn and to connect and you know thank you for the advocacy work you're doing we're all in this together and all kind of I guess fighting for that common goal about you know creating new diverse workplaces and that inclusive environment to benefit all parties 100 percent yeah thank you so much take care I really appreciate it thank you you too bye well I hope you enjoyed our chat and can take some helpful tips away or even just feel seen and heard a lot of what we talked about can apply to the general population but are just more common in the neurodivergent experience at work I share my own stories mostly because I find examples helpful, but also to hopefully make my neurokin feel less alone in their struggles. I get multiple messages a day from women like me who share so many of these experiences. And although I don't love sharing the more difficult parts of my life, I do it for the benefit of you. Even if it helps one of you feel seen, it's worth it to me. I created this podcast as a platform to talk to incredible neurodivergent humans who I would want to hear from back when I received my diagnosis at 28 years old, and still do. Information is powerful, and so much of what is out there comes from a deficit-focused male lens. We need more stories from women and gender-diverse NDs. So, if you want to come on the show and share your journey, or talk about the incredible work you're doing to help our community, please reach out on any of our socials. And if you're a neurodivergent human, as opposed to an alien, but we don't discriminate, join our Facebook group, Princess in the P podcast community, to connect with some awesome fellow autistic ADHD neurocurious friends. Next week, I'll be talking to an autistic ADHD psychologist all about therapy. So stay tuned. Over and out.